Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. And I pray that you will find this all of those. Through this program, we are excited to be connecting you to people and stories in and related to Israel to give you a window to look through about aspects of life here in Israel that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and comments anytime about any topic, or feel free to be in touch with us at genesis123.co. And also, please feel free to share this with people who you know who will find it of interest. I have the tremendous honor to welcome today's guest, who, as you'll see, has incredible credentials. And we're going to be discussing a crit- critical topic. Rabbi Uri Pilachowski is a native of New Jersey and moved to Israel, where he studied, earning a bachelor's of Talmudic law and rabbinic ordination. While living in Israel, then, Rabbi Pilachowski taught and mentored gap year students, which brought together his deep passion and commitment as a rabbi and as an educator. He has served in the capacity of community and congregational rabbi in Beverly Hills, California, and in Boca Raton, Florida. And in January, excuse me, in July 2014, Rabbi Pilachowski and his family made Aliyah and moved to Mitzpeh Yericho, a community in between Jerusalem and Jericho, where his wife currently serves as mayor. Both in the U.S. before coming to Israel and since, Rabbi Pilachowski has been an active advocate for Israel. As an educator and mentor to many, he's created the first teen pro-Israel political group in the U.S., that taught students to advocate in Congress for a stronger U.S.-Israel relationship. His students have gained national reputation, and that's even reached the White House. Rabbi Pilachowski continues to teach his students from Israel live online and before the pandemic, hosting student groups where he explains the intersection of biblical Jewish history and modern Israeli history from his unique perspective living in Judea and Samaria. He's a staunch advocate for the right of Israeli Jews to live in and for the Israeli government to govern Judea and Samaria and the obligation to treat Palestinian Arabs fairly, with dignity, and with all human rights. Rabbi Pilachowski is a respected commentator and frequent guest on a variety of TV and internet broadcasts. He approaches the complexities of life in Israel and among our Arab neighbors with nuance, intelligence, respect, and a rational, sound, biblical approach that interweaves his broad knowledge that's both authoritative and refreshing. Rabbi Pilachowski, welcome to Inspiration from Zion, and thank you so much for making the time to be with us. Thank you. With that, I, my mother is going to be so proud of that introduction. That was, uh, that was unbelievable. Thank you. I don't think that went on and on and on. I appreciate that greatly. Well, it, 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 it comes from sincerity because for a very long time I've been following you, as many others do, and you're one of the few people uh, who I really enjoy when I see social media posts. I, I make it a point to go out of my way to see what you've got to say. It's meaningful. I appreciate so, that. So that you're, the fact that your mother will enjoy it is good for the downloads for the podcast, and, uh, yeah. and, and we're, we're excited uh, for that. But it's, it's with all sincerity. So, so let's jump in. This week, 
we're celebrating the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, which was the 1917 recognition by the government of England of the right of the Jewish people to have a homeland in the land of Israel and committing itself to make that reality. Now, specifically at a time today, when people challenge Israel's very right to exist as a Jewish state, and there are many efforts to delegitimize Israel and its sovereignty and even its very existence, we want to take a look at some of the historic foundations for the existence of modern Israel. But as it's appropriate, before we get into the biblical history, excuse me, before we get into the historic events from 1917, I'd like to discuss with you some of the biblical foundations of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. And for people who don't understand all of the biblical history, and I and I say this at the risk of putting you on the spot, as we say in the Jewish tradition, to teach the entire Torah standing on one foot, what would you say would be the top two, three, five um, biblical pillars of how and why the Jewish people have a right to the land of Israel? Well, it's, it's an apropos question, and uh, this week's Torah portion, when we're recording this, the Jewish Jewish people have a custom of, of uh, breaking the, the Torah into, uh, into about 52 different parts, maybe about 50 different parts. Um, we call them parshiot or sedrot, uh, and we uh, we read one every single week, and that, that week, you are supposed to spend the week studying that week's, uh, that week's portion, and this week's portion happens to be uh, what we call Lech Lecha, when God told, told Abraham to travel from what was then northern Iraq, where he was living and where he was brought up and born, um, as God said, from your, from your land, from the, your birthplace, uh, and from your father's household, and travel to what was then called Canaan, would one day be the land of Israel. Uh, and this land, God said, would be yours and your descendants. Uh, to, and Abraham was commanded to look uh, all aspects of the land and all corners of the land and said, whatever you see, that's going to be your children's land. So that takes, that's first and foremost. And Abraham's children, um, Isaac and Jacob, were also told the exact same, given the same promise, as were the Jewish people when they were slaves in Egypt, uh, and were told that they would one day be freed and brought back to the land of Israel. And that was done. That's exactly what happened. And God commanded the Jewish people at the end of the, uh, at the end of, of uh, what we call uh, the book of Bamidbar, the, uh, I'm forgetting the name in English, give me one Numbers. second. Numbers, thank you very much. The book of Numbers, where God commands the Jewish people to both live and settle the land, to live in the land. And those are two different commandments. It's not enough for us to simply build up the land. We actually have to live there. Um, and the, the Jewish commentators explain that that is one of our 613 commands. Um, so if I was going to top five, I don't know, I think there's, there's way too many, but those those are the two that stick out in, in my mind um, that connect the Jewish people to this land uh, that is uh, that is so special to us. And it's really our heritage. I mean, that's what it's called. It is our heritage and it's our land. And we are indigenous to this land. We're native to this land. And that's really the uh, the biblical imperative uh, that kept us going for 2000 years to return to this land. So, I mean, that that's terrific. And, 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 and that all makes sense. Um, but what's fascinating in what you said is that we're, you, you talked about both the uh, the commandment, God commanding Abraham uh, to, to to come to Israel and 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 to to receive the inheritance, the, the the heritage, but also the obligation that we have as Jews not to, to be here to receive that. Um, can can the two can the two possibly um, exist without one another? And it's interesting. So, so we, you know, 
No. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, I, I'm not one to promote the fact that all Jews must live in the land of Israel. That's a personal choice that all Jews have to make. Uh, but there's no question that this is the home of all the Jewish people. And, uh, and there's no better place, as we all know, than being at home. So, uh, so while Jews might find temporarily, temporarily might find shelter in other lands, um, and they're welcome there, especially in the United States of America, where I was born and raised and have great, tremendous gratitude towards that nation. Um, but in reality, this is home. This is where we look to. This is where it has always been our home. And we've never, we've never abandoned that thought and that idea. Um, no matter what, what countries we spread out to, this has always been home. So we've got God's commandment and God's promise that he, and the promise that he reiterated. Um, I, I'm guessing it was shortly after you graduated high school in New Jersey that you came here and, and, and studied and got your ordination. Um, but, but it's more, only more recent, only in the last several years, that you actually made Aliyah, that you took on citizenship and, and, and brought your, uh, your family. Uh, one of the things that I love, as I mentioned before, in terms of following you, one of the things that you do that's so interesting in, in your, in your regular posts is you've got hashtag living the dream and you, and you count the number of days that you've been here and you're approaching 2700, which is awesome, which is incredible. I've not counted the number of days, but I think that's fabulous. Can you take the, the, the broader picture of God? promising the land and commanding us to be here to a to a, a biblical model for yourself and is there a and is there a biblical I, well, i'm going to use the word model again but is there a person who a, a biblical character who you see yourself modeling or or who with whom you particularly connect to being here in the land uh, that's a fascinating question i've never actually thought of it that way and the biblical imperative until you answer your first question 100 percent applies to each of us. The Bible is not meant as a book to stand on the shelf and, uh, and sit and look nice. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm always disturbed when I see leather-bound, beautiful Bibles, because <laughs> those are, that, that's not the way the book is meant to be. Uh, you know, the binding should be broken, the pages should be frayed, and, uh, and we should all look at that book as, uh, as, as that's our God. That's, yes. that's how we're supposed to be living. So when the Bible says, move to Israel and settle it, so that's what we do. You know, people sometimes you think that settler is a dirty word. And people always ask me, how come I, I call myself a settler? And the answer is because God told me to settle the land. I'm doing it. What more could I be proud of than, uh, than following God's command to settle the land? Some other people might have different connotations to the word. That's their problem, not mine. Correct. Uh, God said to settle the land. That's what I do. In terms of a personal model of somebody who I, who I look to, I don't really, I, I don't know if that's a, uh, an authentic Jewish concept that we're supposed to look at other people and model ourselves after them. I think that we're supposed to look at the Bible and uh, and see the commands and see the the guidance that the Bible gives that God gave us in the Bible and look at that as our directions. And that's how we're supposed to model each other. So I feel, I relate and find your first question more relevant so much than okay. the second one. Um, so there's nobody I've actually looked at and said I want to be like that person. Um, it's more of I want to be the best person that I can be. Well, I thought one of the things that I that I thought of in, in, in preparation for this is because based on where you live and you also sometimes post some gorgeous sunrises from your perspective coming from the mountains of Jordan, um, you're real close to where Joshua and the, and, and the people of Israel came into the land. I mean, re- right there. And I think of you and how you relate that it's a it, it, Maybe inappropriate, but it, but in a sense, you and I were here ten years before you. But we're a new, we're that new generation. It, it 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 it's and we're here and we're building it up and we have the privilege of um of of receiving that 
inheritance. So regardless of which biblical character, um, I, I do think of you at least from that geographic um, perspective. And, and Josh was a pretty solid uh, biblical character uh, to, to, to want to emulate. Um, yes. Let, let's shift over to, to now to the modern, uh, the modern history. Your your family also after after the uh, diaspora, presumably when the second temple was destroyed, uh, was was forced out of the land at some point, and I'm guessing like my family at some point ended up in in Russia or Eastern Europe, um, and and all of those. In fact, also digressing a bit on a personal note, but I'm always overwhelmed the fact that I have the privilege, not just of doing what you've said, receiving God's gift, but, but, but also living here as he commanded, but also fulfilling the dreams of, of, of my relatives, people who really only could dream. And, and, and for instance, my youngest son who was born here, my only child born here in Israel is named for um, cousin and a great grandfather who were victims of the Holocaust. And and the, and the youngest cousin was old enough at the time to be praying for Israel, to be to to know that Israel was the place that we go. So for all of the history of thousands of years, we've prayed, we've dreamt, we've always had the aspiration. When we pray as Jews, we pray facing Jerusalem, whether it's from New Jersey facing east or Australia facing west, uh, northwest, and and it's only about 150 years ago that the modern Zionist movement actually began uh, with, with putting, putting a bit of advocacy, which, which uh, as I'm speaking about that, is really appropriate for you because that's one of the great things that you're teaching your students, putting the advocacy behind the prayers and dreams. So if we can, let's jump back to 1917. What was happening in the Jewish world that put the wind in the sail that suddenly the British government is now recognizing the legitimacy of a Jewish, uh, a, a Jewish. I'm looking at the text of the de- of the declaration itself. The establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Why, why did that happen in 1917? I think that it, what what happened was that uh, a number of Jewish uh, leaders who weren't really leaders at the time, but they just took on the mantle, uh, recognized the fact that things were getting very bad in Europe. Um, and that the, the future of the Jewish people in Europe was bleak. I don't think they ever imagined how bleak it would become. I don't think anybody could, uh, could really predict of uh, 6 million Jews being slaughtered in, uh, in gas chambers. Um, so, but, but they recognized something was happening and, some, and it wasn't positive and, and the Jews needed to get out. Um, and there was nowhere for them to go. Um, and they realized that maybe this is the time that we, we need to actually move back. Um, and one man, Chaim Weitzman, was, was, uh, was well positioned. Uh, he had done he had done work uh, and, and chemical research. He was a chemist for the British government and had supplied them with materials that, that he had he had developed that greatly uh, enhanced the the British fighting capabilities against the German army and had really to the, the British credited his his discovery and his research with their victory against the Germans in World War One and therefore he was able to to use that that gratitude uh, to help his people. Um, and went to Lord Balfour and went to other uh, members of the British Parliament and lobbied them, uh, really, the, you know, to, to create a Jewish state where the British had you know, recently taken over the mandate of what was then called Palestine. Um, and was able to say, look, it's time. It's time the Jewish people went back. It's been, at that point, it was 1900 years, and it's time that we, uh, that we returned as a people. So I think that it was a, it was a combination of factors. Obviously, God's hand and providence was behind it all. 
Um, but I think that it was a, it was a number. I don't think you could pinpoint any one factor. I think it was just a number of factors coming together. Uh, the 500 years previous was the Muslim Ottoman Empire was in charge. So that wasn't, there was no chance that Jews were going to be able to take uh, the, uh, their land back uh, or be given to it by, uh, by a, a caliphate. So this was really a chance where, where a, a democracy was in charge and people that thought about freedom uh, and, and you know, a country great enough to produce a Winston Churchill. So that was, that was a country that was poised to be able to see the Jewish rights of the land and bring them back. Excellent. Um, do you think there was anything particularly at the time in Britain that made, other than Chaim Weizmann, who, who ultimately became Israel's first president, um, was there anything that made the British particularly receptive to the idea beyond his personality and the gratitude? Honestly, I'm not sure. I don't know if the average British person um, you know, recognized what was happening when it was when it was happening. I think that people were shell shocked from the war. Um, there were a lot of parliamentarians um, and the British House of Commons that were against this idea of, of bringing the Jewish people back. Um, so it wasn't something that the entire British you know, people and, and uh, elected officials, you know, a lot of people thought that Lord Balfour sort of slipped it in his declaration that it wasn't really something that was done with consensus of the British government. So I don't think that you could, I, I don't, I, I have gratitude to the British for releasing the Balfour Declaration, but their actions after releasing the Balfour Declaration really uh, told and, and uh, you know, really revealed what was truly in their hearts. And it was not a love of the Jewish people. And it was not a love of the Jewish people being in Israel. hundred um, percent for a much bigger conversation. And, and as a tangent, um, it's important to note that prior to 1917, the, uh, the I believe it was the British who floated the idea of giving the Jewish people an independent uh, state in Uganda, um, also part of the uh, part of the British Empire. Um, but but for again, and, and maybe we'll have you back for that kind of broader conversation. But you mentioned the Ottoman Empire. You mentioned uh, the, the the British mandate uh, mandate with a capital M that was that was. Uh, Given to the British after the First World War by the League of Nations, and uh, and the British and the French basically divided up most of what was had been the former Ottoman Empire because they were also part of the losing side after the First World War. Um, but but narrowing in on the British mandate and specific, they also took over Iraq, but um, but mandating focusing specifically on what was then the administrative area called Palestine. Was a much bigger area. Was was an area. I mean, if if people can look, imagine the map of all of of what Israel currently controls as Israel and and West Bank, Judea and Samaria, what have you, we're talking about only about twenty percent of the whole landmass of what the British controlled as far as Palestine. And then, and and, and your point is very uh, well well taken that at some point right after that, they kind of showed their other side and weren't so uh, helpful by giving the eighty percent of the land of the, the land of Palestine to become a Hashemite Arab kingdom under King Abdullah, who they transported from uh, from the Arabian Peninsula and, and created a new kingdom. So, so do you have any sense? I mean, other than the fact that you correctly observed that they really didn't have a love. For the, for for the Jewish people, and and certainly there were geopolitical things going on that they the Arabs controlled the oil, and oil was much more important than 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 it is today. What what else do you think might have 
motivated the British to say, well, we're going to take all of Palestine and, and Lord Balfour's uh, declaration that we're going to establish a Jewish national home in Palestine, but then lob off 80% of it and, and create an Arab state. I, I can I don't I, I I'm not an expert in in uh, you know in the uh, British, but I, I think that there's a there is clearly um, a a lack of a lack of appreciation of of what it meant, and I think that Lord Balfour took things into mostly into his own hands and was able to get this through. There's there's really nothing else that I that I'm familiar with with the British um, that shows that this was part of a master plan that this was something some sort of uh, you know a, a consensus opinion in, in uh, amongst the uh, the British that the Jews should be able to get back to their land. So it was sort of an anomaly, the Balfour Declaration. Um, and it wasn't something that you could look at and say, okay, the British did this. I think if, you, if we look back and we really look into the, and to how it was developed, I think we're going to see uh, that this is a lot more of Lord Balfour's uh, you know, actions than the British actions. Do you have a sense, I, I know that, uh, of course, when they issued the, the when Lord Balfour issued the Balfour Declaration, uh, the opening line is His Majesty's government, which means on behalf of King George, who is then the sovereign. And, and, and as you and probably everyone listening knows, the king or today the queen is the titular head of the, uh, of the Church of England. Um, I don't know how, how, how religious a person the, uh, King of England was, but I believe that Lord Balfour was do you think that being a Christian motivated him at all? It's possible, but uh, I'm not really. I'm not the. I'm not the person to ask. You know, there's certain things that I, I don't like. Uh, you know, flubbing answers. So I, no, I don't no, know. Fair. I'm right, but I, I I would hope so. It would be great if it was. Yeah. Sorry about the uh, the background noise. Someone's trying to reach me. Ironically, a Christian from Pakistan is trying to call at the moment. Um, but we'll just sort of let that go. Um, let's let's jump over to. The, the the division of Palestine, uh, which I would, which has two implications, uh, then in the 1920s, and uh, and we'll come to sort of a modern uh, understanding. What was what's your understanding of how that impacted the Jewish perspective on establishing a state when suddenly 80 percent of the land, many of us thought that, and and we have to point out that the biblical land of Israel crosses over the Jordan River into what's today Jordan. And and many people thought, oh, we're going to establish a Jewish state in all of it. I, I don't know much about that. Do you are you aware of whether that was a setback or we retrenched? What was the what was the attitude then? I think that a lot of people you know, there's if you go through the Bible and, and create maps of the areas um, throughout the Bible, of what God promises the Jewish people. Um, and there are there are Talmudic discussions about this, which I think are a little too complex for 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 us right now. But the, 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 the borders of the land of Israel are not as set as we would imagine them to be. Um, it's not that if you look in your Bible, you'll find set borders, and that's what the Jewish people followed. Uh, but, there, I mean, there are some borders that could be understood to be all the way out into Iraq. Um, but I don't think that the you know, Jewish people really had their eyes set on, on traveling all the way out to Iraq and creating that uh, yeah, on their own. So I think that a lot of, you know, to use the word settle again, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of, of our uh, of, of our history has been you know in this land has been settling settling for what we can get. Um, oh, yeah, think, oh, that's a great that's a great appropriate use of the word. I like that. Right. So that's so that's how I'd say that it's uh you know that that we you know we were given 
55% of, you know, of 20% of the land to start off with in the partition plan. And we could have easily done what the Palestinians or the, then what they were called the Arabs did, which was reject the entire plan. And if we don't get everything, then we're not going to take anything. Um, but we didn't. We looked at it and said, look, for the first time in 1900 years, we can be autonomous in our own land and determine our own, our own destiny. We're going to take that opportunity. And if we don't get everything that we want right now, eventually things will work out in our favor as they are. Uh, so that's what uh, I think that's that's the main idea. So instead of looking at the various maps and saying maybe you know, we should have had more, we could have had more. It was disappointing. I think that it's more I like to look at the glass as half full. And here this right. is like really literal um, and say, OK, so we didn't get everything. But look how much we did get and uh, and how special going back to, to what you're talking about before our ancestors out in, in Europe. Um, you know, my family was in Poland for hundreds upon hundreds of years in a foreign land and in a, in a hard land. Um, and I, I, you know, I always picture um, be, you know, walking into the bunker at Auschwitz where my grandfather was interned and, and say, and, you know, and, and being able to, to, to you know, walk up to his bunker as he's freezing cold, um, you know, sharing a blanket with, uh, with the inmates next to him. And, uh, and being able to whisper in his ear and tell him, excuse me for choking up, but, yeah. um, you know, your great grandchildren will be citizens of a autonomous Jewish nation, you know, and a state in the land of Israel. And what that, they, he never believed it, you know, looking at where the Jewish people were a mere 80 years ago. Um, so I don't look at this land and say, well, we were robbed of, uh, you know, of, of so much. I look at it and say, I'm so grateful for what we have. Agreed. I, I'm glad you shared that personal note because I think I, I speak also of my relatives and particularly the ones who my son is named for and and imagine them dancing in the graves that they don't even have, celebrating the fact that this now 16 year old Jewish boy is growing up and there and 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 he is their namesake and he's carrying that on here. Hundred um, percent. It's quite awesome. Um, you, you mentioned at the outset, speaking about God's promise to Abraham and his descendants, and immediately I wanted to interject and say, okay, well, we know that Abraham had another son, his oldest son, and Arabs believe that they're descended from Ishmael, and God, I, I don't know the text, perhaps you do, but God says, don't worry, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of, of, of him also. But Isaac is the chosen son and, th- and through whom we inherit um, this land. Overlapping that, and, and we're going to get into the current situation a little bit, where, where if anywhere, is there a uh, um, in, in the Bible a precedent for two states? Is there, is there a claim that's legitimate biblically? No, I don't, I don't think so at all. I think that, uh, I think that that's uh, an absurd notion. Um, to split the land, uh, God, God distinctly told us not to uh, create a deal with the inhabitants of the land. Um, he said that there'll always be a thorn in your side, and that's we're definitely seeing that. And I'm not an advocate of of expelling people from the land in this in this uh, century, um, but uh, but it, it's clear that a two state divide the land. Uh, the, what, the way I explain it to my children, to my children, to my students, um, <laughs> is that a uh, my, my, you'll hear from the analogy that I'm about to give that my, my children themselves, I don't have to explain this, they know this very well, but uh, I explain that when parents have children fighting, so it's very rare, I mean, it's an award-winning parent that sits down with their children and says, okay, let's hear both your claims, 
and then mom and dad will decide who's correct. And you know, no parent does that. Parents Excellent. just want quiet and peace and stop uh, stop arguing. You know, um, and if that means, and no, it, usually both children end up upset with whatever the parents decide. Um, and I think that's sort of what the international community did to the Jews and the Arabs. They said, "Listen, just stop fighting. We'll give we'll split this land up between the two of you." Um, and it didn't work then. And they're still hooked on this idea that if we just split the land, everything will be okay. But if they would just look into their own homes and recognize that that never creates a peaceful atmosphere, that just creates more and more resentment, which then turns violent. Uh, so then uh, yeah, that they, they would recognize that this idea has to be abandoned. It cannot be uh, something that will work. So, so, so I want to, one of the things that's always impressive to me is, is how your communication, whether you're on a TV show debating someone of an opposite view or certainly in your posts on social media and how you respond, you're responding thoughtfully and you're, you're very firm in that position that, that there's no set, that there's no settlement in the, in, in, in splitting up the land. But you're also emphatic about respect for our neighbors, uh, for the for the Arab neighbors. And yet you also use that great analogy of kids always fighting. And if you and and if you kind of give in, you're always going to have more uh, more fighting. So how do you explain to your students, to the world, to people listening uh, right now, in a way that's sensitive, and you're you're a you're a settler in the pejorative way that, that some people look at it. As I'm a settler, we're in in land that that sometimes people say we don't have a legitimacy to be in, which is somewhat absurd. And how do you explain that from a sensitive way of having neighbors and and telling the world that no, we're not occupying another country and we're not occupying another people. But we do have a mutual. Uh, we we need to have a mutual respect and coexistence. What's how do you explain that? I think that it's you know the problem is in the assumption that that it needs to be explained. I think if we would close our eyes and not use the words Israel, Palestine, and uh, and Jews and Arabs, um, and and simply say we have two people living in the same land, one has control and one does not. Um, so there's a power imbalance. So how should how should things be corrected? So some people might say, well, the power balance should be you know evened out, but that's not how life works, right? We don't we don't have that we can just there's no keys to hand over and say, okay, now everything will be will be equal. This is a Jewish state. Um, there are there are tens of Arab states. That's a, that's a reality of the world, um, and this is the one Jewish state. So Jews are in control, but with that comes tremendous tremendous uh, obligations to treat um, those that are here in the proper way. So I think that on the one hand, everybody seems to assume that generosity has to equal equality. That's not true. Um, And I'm not suggesting an apartheid type system, but uh, when I say equality, this is a Jewish state. That's what it is. It's a Jewish state and it's going to remain a Jewish state. Um, And that does not mean that we can't recognize other faiths and, and give them full uh, rights to practice their faith. We do that, and we're so proud of that, that this is the only country in the Middle East where all three uh, major faiths and anybody else, even minor faiths, uh, you know, could come and, and pray and, and relate to their God as they wish. Um, and it's the only place in the Middle East, and we're the only people that have ever done that here. Um, we're, you know, we're, the only, we're the only people that have been in power, and we, I think we've proven ourselves worthy of governing this area because of how 
how generous we've been and and uh, and treated everybody fairly. And I think that has to be the model for how we how we deal with our with our neighbors. It has to be a a sense of we are going to treat them fairly. We are all created in the image of God, um, and therefore we have to relate to people as those who are created in God's image. It's interesting you say that because I don't I, I don't know the word count, but the Balfour Declaration itself is very very brief. But Lord Balfour wrote in it uh, after acknowledging the, 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 that the, they intend to establish a national home for the Jewish people um, and use their best endeavors to facilitate this. He writes, it's, it, it, clearly be, it, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities, which is what you, what you just said, and, and, I, and it's correct. For anyone who doubts that, that 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 the state of Israel does give that, but and so, right, it's also in our Declaration of Independence. Correct, same same notion. Correct, and and for people who want more more information about that, I should have mentioned this at the outset. You know, another another good reason to be in touch with us, uh, inspiration from Zion at Gmail. If you have questions, we can give you sources and answers to questions. Um, is so so you're here, and we started with the Bible. Lord Balfour shook things up and wrote a short letter to, uh, to, to to the Jewish community saying that we're going to establish a Jewish home uh, in 1917. And, and, and we're celebrating that anniversary this week. We have our home. Lord Balfour said nothing about peace. 30 years later, the United Nations then decided on a partition of what remained of, of Palestine to create an, another Arab and a Jewish state, and you alluded to the fact correctly that the Jewish community accepted it, and um, and I and I love how you use the, the 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 other use of the word we settled for that, and and we built something really beautiful. Unfortunately, we fought for it. Fast forward to today from Balfour, do you have a concrete resolution as to how we uh, are, are going to actually make peace, or is this going to be the status quo that we're going to live and aspire to better? I don't predict the future, um, so I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I have enough trouble understanding what is happening, uh, but I uh, but so I, I do not. I can't tell you what's going to happen, and I don't have a solution to how things should be better. Um, I do think that the current situation has to be one of the most absurd dysfunctions ever in, in the history of humanity, which is two people who love the same land are constantly deciding to kill their own children over that land. When it makes much more sense to say. Two people love the same land, so they should figure out a way to live in it peacefully together. Uh, so that that's that's one of my great frustrations. That I mean, we just look at the situation here; and it's 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 nonsensical. Uh, so that's. Uh, but I do not have any solution going forward. Is there a better uh, biblical metaphor for what you just said than King Solomon splitting the baby? Right. Yeah. That's a very. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a great analogy. Um, it's just, it, it does not, uh, there, there are many instances in the Bible where you look at it and wonder what the people were thinking at that point. Um, and uh, and this, is, this is going to be a, a place in Jewish history where we look back and say, how could this have ever happened? Wow. Uh, that, that, that you, you, I don't know about others, but you got my heart racing on that. That was very, very profound. Um, and, and I look forward to the privilege of looking back on the history for a, a couple of years, but, but obviously many decades in the future, which, which we won't be here for, uh, but, but doing our part. Um, before we wrap up, 
Um, it's a broad conversation. We, 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 you, we're talking about thousands of years between biblical history and, and the Balfour Declaration. Is there anything that that you, Rabbi, uh, that you think that we left out that um, that you would want your students to know and, and and the people listening as to where how these two intersect and what's the significance of it for us today? I think it's important to note that uh, that it always you know. It, a lot of times we scroll, right? Today we we don't watch the news; we scroll through the no, the news. Um, and while you know, we used to. I grew up in the New York area. There was a radio station that used to say, "If you pay, yeah, you, know, you tune in, in twenty two minutes, we'll give you the news." Right. Um, and in twenty two minutes, you were supposed to understand everything that was going on in the world. And today, it's it's a mere matter of seconds. Twenty two minutes right. is a lifetime to listen to the news. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that seems almost crazy. I can look up the whole news and figure out everything that's going on. By reading uh, the top headlines and looking at something, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention specific sites, but something like the Drudge Report, I can just go through, uh, you know, lists of headlines and uh, and and figure figure out what's going on. Uh, but I think every once in a while we have to take a, a deep breath and uh, and close our eyes and think about what's happening and look at it in a larger perspective of of world history and recognize that yeah you know, we're all on a line you know, of, of history. And uh, and where we find ourselves, what spot we're on. We, we, we always imagine that we're at the, the pinnacle and we, we've reached the top, but we don't know really what tomorrow has to bring. And there's been so many days in history where we look at, you know, look at and say, how could we not have seen that coming? Um, and we, I had no idea that that was about to happen. Tragic days like, like September 11th, you know, and September 10th, no one had any idea Correct. that the entire world was going to change the next day. Um, and also joyous days, days for us on May 14th, 1948. Yeah, we had an uh, amazing thing. November 29th, 1947, when, when the world voted to have a state of Israel. No one saw that coming. Yeah, it was an incredibly joyous day. So, so those, those types of, of moments, we really have to take a step, step back and recognize that there is one being controlling uh, world events. And we're not really in control. And uh, humanity has always tried to, to grasp control of its destiny and its future. And a lot of times we plan and God laughs. Uh, and uh, and that's that's the one message I think is important when discussing world events to recognize that all the all the different uh, uh, events that happen, everything that happens, there's really something there's there's someone behind it all, um, and that's important to recognize. Thank you. You know, I, I at the outset you uh, commented in a in a way that you were a bit humbled by my introduction, but I have to say now we wrap up. You, uh, as generous as my introduction may have been, I have to say, and I hope everyone listening, you over-delivered. Um, and, and, and many, many other topics that I hope we can um, have the privilege of having you back for. Um, but Rabbi Uri Pilachowski, I want to thank you um, for joining us in general, but also especially on a, uh, on a weekday when you're teaching your students and finding a little, a little window to share some of your insight with us. I also want to thank, um, as we wrap up, um, we have to be uh, especially appreciative for the sponsors that make this podcast possible. Um, first of all, our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. And I always like to say, if you are in the Culpeper, Virginia area and need something that a greenhouse has, go in and get it. And if you're, and if you don't need anything, just go in and give them a hug and tell them thank you for making this possible. And also special thanks to our friends, the Coin family for their meaningful sponsorship. Uh, inspiration from Zion and all of the Genesis. One, two, three foundation programs are made possible by donations, 
So I please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and to build bridges between Jews and Christians and create uh, higher levels of understanding as we've done here today. Um, if you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor, honor or memory of a loved one, or maybe a special occasion, some of the occasions that Rabbi uh, Pilachowski just alluded to, um, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We would love to hear questions and comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send questions at any time, um, especially questions you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi segments. Um, please also share this with people who will find this of interest and continue to join us right here where, as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. And wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings here from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Rabbi Polachowski, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful show that you have. Thank you so much.